special edition of our show, Herstory, on the rock with Katie and Allie. So normally on a Thursday night, it would just be Allie and I hanging out, having cocktails, talking about famous women in history. But sometimes we like to talk to women who are writing about history. We have a very special guest with us today, Amy Sohn. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Amy is a New York Times bestseller of 12 books, including Prospect Park West, Motherland, and The Actress, and she is here to talk with us about her newest book, The Man Who Hated Women. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? About myself, yes, absolutely. Um, so I've been a novelist. I started out as a novelist when I was in my early 20s. My first book was called Run, Catch, Kiss, and was kind of like the low-income sex in the city, dating only below 14th Street and east of the Bowery in (laughs) and in Brooklyn. Um, And I was a columnist at New York Press when I was in my 20s, which was kind of like similar to The Village Voice. Um, And yeah, I think this is my 12th or 13th book. You know, I don't always count I don't count the ones that I've written for other people sometimes. I've worked as a collaborator in addition to my own work. But this book, The Man Who Hated Women, which the subtitle is, I'll do that again. But this book, The Man Who Hated Women, Sex, Censorship, and Civil Liberties in the Gilded Age, is my first work of narrative nonfiction. And I decided that instead of making my first work of narrative nonfiction, modern day, I was going to write about the 19th century, (laughs) but I was going to write, yeah, I was going to write stuff about the 19th century that nobody knows about that is incredibly cool. And um, this book proves, as I'm sure we will get into in this conversation, that sex uh, was not actually invented in 1969. (laughs) Perfect. Well, we can't wait to get into this book, but first we have to get into this lovely cocktail Allie made. So Allie, what are we drinking tonight? So obviously the cocktail's named after your book, The Man Who Hated Women, and I made a white cosmopolitan, and it is an ounce and a half of citrus vodka, a half an ounce of elderflower liqueur, one ounce of white cranberry juice, a half an ounce of lemon juice, and then I threw a whole bunch of cranberries in there to float around. <laughs> okay. Now, did you intentionally make this like a urinary tract infection healer? Because <laughs> you got all, you got all yeah. the ingredients in there. It serves as okay. like this, like also like the idea of like this pure drink. It's white. Yes. It's white. It's supposed to be pure, but then you have these red cranberries and also just in honor of a very sour man. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It it works for me on all levels. Ah, Perfect. Well, cheers. Ah, <laughs> uh, love it's it. It's so good. A white, I mean, a, a Cosmo is always yeah, good. Yeah. So. <laughs> Which I love because you already mentioned Sex and City. So. I know. <laughs> Perfect. So before we dive into all the characters in the book and the action, can we set the scene for your story? What is life like for women in the Gilded Era? Well, that's a great opening question. Um, first of all, in, in 1870s New York, at, following the Civil War, um, there were an extraordinary number of single men and single women living in New York apart from their families for really the first time in American history on a grand scale. You had um, young men who had 
who were Civil War veterans, and they were living in boarding houses. And there was something called sporting culture or sporting life, which meant that um, downtown was all about downtown, which, of course, was all that there was of New York at that time, was all about bars and um, cute waitresses who were actually prostitutes and billiards. And at the same time, you had a lot of women who were also living apart from their families, working extremely low-wage jobs in factories. And many of them uh, prostituted themselves partially. We like to think of, it's easy to think of it as like a binary thing, like you're either a prostitute or you're not. But what was much more common then um, was something like, you know, accepting gifts or favors from a man or actually tricking part of the time, but then having a factory job because you could just make way, way, way more, more money. Um, and so some of these women, the YWCA came later than the YMCA. Um, you had young men and women interacting. And yet it was really, it would take another 25 years or so before you would have what we like to think of as dating, which was Coney Island going out to see entertainment together. Um, it, was, it was not a great time to be single because women were really commodified for their bodies. Um, it wasn't very safe to be a young woman. And of course, some of the time, um, women got pregnant and they had to go to abortionists, which I can talk about a little bit more. So I guess it was good and bad. It was nightlife for the single, but it was mostly nightlife for single men and women who were paid. They hadn't yet, we were, we would take us another 130 years to have the kind of nightlife where we would be drinking the cocktail that you just made all, all, uh, you know, empowered groups of women going out. Yeah. Well, and I think that's such a great way to set the scene because then we have, I mean, the ultimate villain of this time period of women, someone we talk about all the time because he, again, is just this villain that comes up in all of our stories. Um, (laughs) and he is the man who hated women. He's in the title of your book. I mean, what can you tell us about Anthony Comstock if people don't already know? Well, many people have not heard of him. Obviously, on your show, they have. Um, <laughs> I would hope so. <laughs> he, he was the most significant individual in the reproductive lives of American women for roughly 100 years, from 1873 to 1973. I like 1973 because it's the year of my birth. I also like 1973 because it's the year Roe v. Wade was passed. Um, And there were also a couple important um, circuit court and Supreme Court decisions uh, uh, protecting women's right to get contraception from their doctor um, around that time, the 60s and the 70s. So Anthony Comstock, um, I'm going to try something I haven't tried before. Historians are supposed to speak in the present tense. I find it to be a little bit pretentious, but I'm gonna give it going to give it a try. It reminds me of college lectures where they would just immediately do this like very pretentious present tense. So Anthony Comstock is born in 1844 in New Canaan, Connecticut, which at the time um, had a lot of farms. And he was born into a oh, sorry, he is born into <laughs> 
<laughs> Congregationalist family. They go to church for basically like all day on Sunday. And when he's 10 years old, he comes home and he sees his own mother dead of a uterine hemorrhage and his infant baby sister born several hours earlier being cared for by a baby nurse. And despite this fact, or perhaps because of it, because he is raised in such a, a, a conservative religious family, um, he decides uh, after the Civil War to devote his life to making it difficult for women to get contraceptive and abortion information. And it's kind of an amazing confluence of factors that led to that. First of all, he arrives in New York from the small town where everybody knew everybody. He's a Civil War veteran. One of his brothers had died in the Civil War. And all around him, he's meeting these guys who are like, Tony, do you want to play billiards tonight and check out some pretty waiter girls? And he's reading his Bible in his room and thinking of his dead mother, <laughs> praying, praying to God, you know, that he finds another living situation where he doesn't have to be around these guys. Um, it so happens that just a couple of years before he moves to New York in the late 1860s, there's this offshoot of an English organization, the YMCA, the Young Men's Christian Association, that's forming in the United States for the first time in New York specifically. And all of the guys in charge are names that will be very familiar to us. One of them has the last name Colgate. He, he's a soap magnate. Um, Dodge was a, a copper mining um, family. J.P. Morgan was one of the founders. And so what happens is through this weird set of circumstances and, and connections, he's able to befriend these men who have become very concerned about all of the obscene books that are being peddled to men just like Anthony um, on Nassau Street in Manhattan. And so he becomes this like unpaid vice hunter. And my original title for the book was The um, Vice Hunter's Women, which I like, but it sounds a little bit like a show on true TV or <laughs> like nobody really knows what a vice hunter is because we don't use that word in the same way anymore. Um, but he basically just starts going into bookshops and, and calling the police. And the YMCA realizes, hey, this guy is like really committed to this. And um, they find a way to start paying him to do this work. His real job, his quote-unquote day job, which would be the equivalent of, um, you know, a Mick job in the 1870s. He's a dry goods salesman, and he wants eventually to open his own, his own store. So um, as he starts getting better at rooting out the obscene book trade, um, they get the idea to send him to Washington. And in 1873, the Comstock law is passed, March 1873. And what makes it really significant is that it's the first law to link birth control to obscenity. We had already had an obscenity statute that they made use of in the Civil War because what was happening was men were getting really cheap postcards. Paper was getting lighter and the railways were being developed, and so it was easier to send obscene materials through the mail. Um, 
that he was the one who got the idea to link it to abortion and contraception. So in addition to what had already been criminalized, which were things like dirty cards and dirty books and, and um, dirty lithographs and engravings and, and all these things. He, and I should add rubber articles, which um, some were sex toys and some were uh, similar to diaphragms, condoms, all kinds of things. Remember rubber, rubber, the kind of rubber that was useful for contraception was really only invented in the 1840s. Um, which was vulcanized rubber, rubber. So like, you cannot look at the history of contraception without looking at the history of rubber. It's like a whole other book. And what kind of sex toys are we talking about? I think they were ticklers. They were, I think they were ticklers and, and, and they use the expressions differently. Like a lot of times when they say rubber articles, they mean various forms of contraception. Um, But these were, these were, toys that were fun for both uh, partners. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so he passes the law at this time that the credit mobilier scandal is going on. Basically the, the, the uh, high level politicians have been caught in this kind of graft scheme. And so of course this obscenity law looks really good because who's going to be opposed to it. And for one brief moment, this other, the senator proposes an amendment that says that physicians should be able to prescribe contraception. And they like talk about it a little bit, and then it just gets swept aside. And it's, it's so crucial because he was being very logical about it, and it would have changed many, many, many things. But the long and short of it is that the result of this law was that, um, we had a two-tiered system for abortion um, and for certain forms of contraception as well, in which very well-connected people, well-connected women, were able to have access to abortion and lower-income women were not. And what I'm interested in probably more than anything is it had a very, very bad effect on sex literature, which is education about anatomy um, forms of birth control, although sometimes you had to be a little clever to understand what kind of contraception they were talking about. But for example, really simple things like um, telling the woman to douche after sex um, actually has a certain amount of efficacy. Um, you really don't want me to talk about what they were douching with because <laughs> it's not pleasant stuff. Mm-hmm. But my, my secret theory is that... Um, is they were just trying to get women to stand up after sex. So in other words, even if you just went to the bathroom and you like kind of half-heartedly used this, they used to call them syringes, you know, some stuff might fall out like on your way. To, and remember, there's no heating, right? So like getting out, getting out of bed after sex <laughs> at that time, you know, was all too easy to just to just fall asleep. So what wound up happening is, he really created a world in which abortion and what was then called contraception, because the word birth control did not come until later, um, were seen as dirty and wrong, number one. And two, he created this kind of two-tiered system in which by making it more difficult for women to obtain abortions, it became more dangerous to get them. Yeah. So we've got this like 
vice vigilante that makes it to Capitol Hill and is now like really affecting the lives of women. And your book kind of surrounds itself around these quote, sex radical women, several of which we've covered on our show. So um, people can make connections between some of these women, but are there some in the book that are your absolute favorites? Yes. Okay. So I'm guessing the ones you've covered on your show are Victoria Woodhull and her sister, mm-hmm. Tennessee Claflin, mm-hmm. Margaret Sanger. Mm-hmm. And I, and I hope Emma Goldman. Yeah. All right. You got it. So those are, those are the four, like, you know, those are the four top tier ladies in my book. Um, four other women in the book are not well, um, nobody's really ever heard of them. And of course, remember, there's also a a lot of people that don't know Emma Goldman was a birth control activist, Mm -hmm. and they really don't know a lot about Victoria and Tennessee, even though Victoria was the first woman to run for president in 1872, and to have her own brokerage house, and to have a mean, a, uh, a widely read leftist newspaper called Woodhull and Claflin's Weekly. But my favorite is Ida C. Craddock, who was a Quaker-born Philadelphian. She attended a school you may have heard of called Friends Central, still a highly regarded Quaker private school in Philadelphia. And she tried, let me try my present tense again. This is going to help me with all my future interviews. So thank you for (laughs) For letting me break my interview hymen on the show. Okay. So Ida C. Craddock is born in 1857 and she wants to go to Penn, the University of Pennsylvania, but they do not admit women. So she tries and tries to get in. She winds up taking the exams like three or four times and of course passes them with flying colors. She spoke, you know, she, she knew Latin, Greek, everything as, as you did at that time. And um, she basically becomes kind of similar to me in my early to mid-20s. She's living at home with her mother. Um, her, her mother's a, a widow. And um, she literally calls the area she sleeps in in the living room the cubicle. Ida's sleeping behind like a partition in the living room, which she calls the cubicle. And she doesn't know what to do with herself. And so she goes to California. She works a bunch of dead-end jobs. She feels like she can't make much money because she doesn't have a college education. She goes to Alaska, and she sees these totem poles. And she starts thinking about phallic symbols. And she becomes interested in this kind of obscure branch of philosophy called sex worship or phallic worship, which is kind of a combination of what we would today call world religions, but like with a heavy emphasis on, on symbolism. I guess it would be like world religion meets semiotics. And um, she then uh, comes back to Philadelphia and she starts writing articles about like totem poles and phallic symbols. And she goes to the World's Fair um, in 1893 in Chicago, which I feel like you may have covered on on other shows. It comes up all the time. All the time. There, everybody. Everybody was there. Exactly. And she sees the belly dancers, which was the hottest ticket at the world's fair. And she starts thinking about how they're rotating their pelvises and it's kind of like sex and um, all these ideas. She didn't just pluck that out of the air. You know, she had been reading books by um, one of the founders of Oneida, which is this colony in upstate New York that was sort of a free love um, colony where men practice something called male continence, which is kind of like when Sting 
said that he was having tantric sex and he could have sex for eight hours and like channel the orgasm like through his forehead. Um, but then he later said it was like six hours of begging, two hours of a movie, <laughs> <laughs> and half an hour of sex. Um, but there are these ideas percolating, you know, Croft Ebbing had, had published Psychopathia Sexualis and there were a lot of really interesting ideas if you if you were a big reader about sex that you could get your hands on, and um, she begins pitching herself Ida C. Craddock as a as a professor like a like a lecturer on phallic worship, and she winds up going on to publish these amazing marriage guides that teach couples what to do on the first night. She basically says if you're if you fall asleep you should go to if you should just go to sleep. She says that. Um, uh, you should move your hips like belly dancers. She's very disappointing on the clitoris. Would you like to know how? <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, yes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> the listeners she, need to know. <laughs> you, you have to remember at this time, this was pre-Freud becoming widely read in the United States because she started writing about this stuff in 1893. And my research showed it's within the next five to 10 years that he, he becomes more widely read in the U.S. And there was this idea that the clitoris was like a penis and that clitoral stimulation was masturbatory, which is such a weird, ridiculous thing because it's like saying, okay, only the penis can be masturbated. I mean, it doesn't really, do you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't really make any sense. But she thought that clitoral stimulation was um was gross you know she thought that it was like not pure hmm. and so her in her vision of sex the man and the woman the man was not to touch the clitoris but she said other things that indicated i think that she felt that it, that it could be helpful such as that you should have like 45 minutes to an hour of what she called foreplay before intercourse, so you're kind of wondering, well, what are they doing? They're touching something <laughs> on each other's bodies, and that they should do this naked. Remember, at this time, the idea of being in bed with someone naked, super radical idea. Like, it's just, it's crazy to, to think about. Um, and, I, and, and so she was not progressive on the clitoris, but what makes her the most interesting person in the whole, whole world, and in, in, in my book, is that she felt that everything she learned about sex came from her ghost husband, Soph, who began visiting her right around the time of the World's Fair after she bought a Ouija board. And he was the ghost of an older man she had known as a child, who had a friend of her mother's who used to come over and flirt with her while they were waiting for her mother to come downstairs. And no one knows if she had an earthly lover and was just using this as a cover for really radical ideas um, or what I believe and then the, the position that I think the book takes that she truly was a virgin by earthly standards and had kind of an interesting relationship to reality. She, she was fully functional mentally. She, in other words, she was not talking to herself in the middle of the day or anything like that. You would not know. He visited her at night. I think she was in some kind of state in between waking and dreaming. Um, and that, you know, this could have even been, you know, remember the story about the cheerleaders all having the hysterical fainting 
Mm-hmm. I think it could have been a way where within her time, it was a way to experience sex and sexuality and of course, masturbation um, within the guise of, um, of a spiritual experience. And you may be wondering, I thought she was against masturbation and against the clitoris. Well, she seems to have rubbed herself against pillows while he was visiting hmm. her. So we don't really know what was going on, going on with her, but she went, she wound up being prosecuted, um, under the Comstock law in, in, uh, four different cities. And I won't give away the ending, but she's just, I absolutely love her. Even that name, Ida C. Craddock, it just, to me, feels like, it feels like it's, a uh, it's so evocative. And by the way, her father sold cannabis. Really nice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another fun fact, the guy who invented the Ouija board is buried like two miles from here. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. That whole, that whole world is amazing because she also did, she tried levitating. She tried something called automatic writing, which is where you take out a pencil and, um, you start to write in strange handwriting and, and the words don't feel as though they're coming from you. There were devices you could use. I mean, she tried so many different things. Yeah. Well, and that's what I, one of the things I really love about your book is that it's entitled the man who hates women, but this whole story is told through these incredible women and the chapters really are like about them. And I really love that, especially like when we really get into the meat of their story, the chapter kind of starts with, their kind of facts and it's like you know where they were born they're you know just basic information and then like the crimes that they are accused of and like some of them went to trial and were convicted of so I would love to know how, what kind of research you did and you know how you got some of this information because I mean I, I know you're based in New York so did you go to like the New York Public Library or these just oh like- yeah yeah I mean I, I think I visited around 10 cities the cities aren't that int- the cities cities don't always relate to where these things happened mm-hmm. um but these were a combination of you know university archives um wellesley mass most unlikely of places happened to have had a woman in wellesley who was a major radical and she was a letter writer she corresponded with one of the women in my book whose name is angela haywood so like I got to read these crazy <laughs> letters sitting in this in this very Wellesley house, you know, up in an attic somewhere. Um, it, I had a room at the New York Public Library. Um, I believe it's the same room where the power broker was written. And I found the logbook in which Robert Caro came in and... Uh, and, and he'd write for six hours a day, but then one day he'd just come in for an hour. And I was like, did he have a doctor's appointment? What's going on with him? <laughs> so many, many, many archives. Um, but one of the things that I'm sure you've heard from other guests on your show is women's history is so masochistic as a researcher, because unless they had a relationship with someone famous, it is so hard to get archival sources. Um, It's really just such a tragedy, the amount of stuff that's been thrown out. Interestingly, another challenge that I faced is many of the women in my book did not marry or have children, and they didn't necessarily have close relationships with their siblings. And as a result, it's really hard to track. Um, you know, my hope was always, oh, my great-great-grandmother was Ida Craddock. Ida Craddock had no children. 
you know, um, and, and that doesn't always mean that you won't find, uh, you know, a relative who has something in an attic, but it is telling to me that they led very non-traditional lives. Um, and some of them were on the fringes. You know, I write about Madame Restel, who was called the wickedest woman in New York and was so closely equated with abortion. Um, she was a, 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 a very, very well-paid abortionist um, that they called it, they called abortion Restelism. They literally named it after her. Um, and she was just kind of on the fringes of society, you know, unless you, a lot of these women were self-educated. They did not, you you know, it's not like they would have donated their archives to Bryn Mawr or wherever, um, because they didn't go to, um, women's colleges or any colleges at all. So I found that very challenging. And when you're writing this kind of work, you're just so happy to have the slightest break, you know, getting 10 or 15 letters, you're like a detective. You're just absolutely delighted. So, you know, my hope is that, is that people can start to um, preserve, you know, for generations going forward, preserve stuff. Um, but sadly, I think, because women's lives are are perceived of as having value only in relation to men they interacted with. Um, too often, we just don't have diaries and letters for these women. And that's the gold standard because I really wanted to get into their personal lives. I was able to use a lot of court records, which is quite amazing, but they don't, they didn't do court transcripts um, regularly until the 20th century. And so that thing you're hoping for where the lawyer gets up and says, but just one more question. (laughs) And they don't, they don't have that. So, yeah. And then I tried to bring Comstock to life. Um, He also, all of his civil war diaries um, appear to have disappeared. He gave them to a set of somehow the set of biographers, I shouldn't say he gave them to, a set of biographers in the, in the vicious circle, the Algonquin era, um, had his diaries and no one knows where they wound up. So I don't know if the authors did something, they never got returned, the publisher doesn't have them. But as you said before, you know, my book is really about the women. It's not about Anthony Comstock. He's the connector. He's the tissue that connects them all. I really wanted it to be about the women's lives and their writings and also just their eccentricity because so many of them had unconventional love and sex lives. Margaret Sanger wanted an open relationship. Her husband didn't want it. She had one anyway. It took her six years to get a divorce. He refused to divorce her. Ida Craddock had this ghost lover. Um, <laughs> Madame Restel was a, was a widow um, in the period that I'm, that I'm writing about. Um, we know Victoria Woodhull lived with two husbands under the same roof, had multiple children with different men in the freaking 1870s. And, and then was able to run for president anyway. So um, yeah. Yeah. I'm very I, inspired by them. Yeah. It, it, it was incredible reading and in terms of your research and then reflecting back on everything you know today, what would you say are some of these women's biggest impacts? Like what theme tied the book together? And like, this is what they have done despite this man that hated them. 
Well, one of them is that suffrage, which we now, you know, rightfully understand to have been white woman suffrage because it took so many more years for women of color. Um, suffrage in and of itself um, came after these women were doing their writing, which means that there was an extraordinary um, power placed on public speaking, publishing and radical press, um, despite not having access to, to the vote for, for white, all the women in my, in my book are white. And, and related to that, that I can keep going back to again and again, all the juries were men. So you're making a case for your own writing, which is about women's sexuality and women's pleasure. And you're doing it for all male judges, jury men, and you're, you know, you're using words like penis and vagina. And it's just, you know, half the time they weren't even allowed to read what the excerpt was because it was considered too obscene. But when you can't read what the excerpt is, how can you determine what the overall intent of the book is? But if there was one big takeaway that I want people to have beyond the fact that um, radical activism works and um, there's many ways to be activist aside from voting, although we should not overlook voting, um, is that to understand the life of a 19th century woman, you have to understand the terror of unintended pregnancy and childbirth. And you cannot really imagine the role of pleasure in their lives at a time when every time you had sex, you could get pregnant and your husband was potentially raping you repeatedly, although we would not have used that language for it. Um, that, that was not criminalized in, in most states um, until way after the women I'm writing about were dead. And so I, I feel like I'm the first person to ever really to write about birth control and contraception in the context of pleasure, which is that we easily get caught up in language of rights, you know, my body, my uterus, my right to do what I want with my body. But to me, the reason that contraception is so essential is because when you remove the fear of pregnancy, and again, you have to understand, these were women having four, six, eight, ten children. It was not just pregnancy, you know, which of course gets higher risk the more children that you have. There was incredible risk of death from childbirth itself. So we're not talking about a minor inconvenience. Pregnancy and childbirth in many cases represented not only illness and, and death, but incredible economic hardship because the burden always fell on the women to care for these babies and the babies keep coming and you've got one income and, you know, women did do work in the home frequently. We know that, uh, you know, women were taking in sewing and childcare and, and other forms of, of, of work. But what I'm really getting at is that birth control is not just about liberty. It's about the freedom to feel pleasure. And how can anyone enjoy themselves when they're just absolutely terrified how can you enjoy yourself when you feel like you can't say no to your own husband to even begin a conversation where you're like, that doesn't feel so good. Let's talk about what feels good. If he treats you like, you know, he owns you and can have sex with you whenever you want. So these women for me are real role models of women's pleasure 
because they were always thinking to themselves, what could women learn to make sex better? And so one of them was that everybody should go slower. One of them was like what I'm talking about, the nude embrace. Um, and then, and then, you know, most important, they're teaching women ways, um, various forms of continence, which are variations on withdrawal. So within the bounds of the Comstock law, where they couldn't say, you know, um, use a condom or, uh, or buy a pessary or, um, you know, other form, various other ways of blocking the cervix. Um, they could say, uh, withdraw before the point of orgasm. And I know I, I, you guys are a little younger than me. I don't know what you learned in school, but withdrawal gets a very bad rap. They, when they teach teenagers, they say it's ineffective, but scientifically, um, it, it definitely reduces pregnancies. Yeah. Well, I went to Christian school, so I didn't get it. <laughs> no wonder you have a women's history book. Uh-huh. <laughs> Anthony Comstock was actually her principal. Yeah. <laughs> you literally made a law. One of my, one of my uh, headmasters actually did make a law that boys had to wear their pants up above their belly button. And that is a true thing. Um, <laughs> there you go. And what kind was this a Catholic school? No, you said, cri- you said Christian school. Mm-hmm. Open Bible. Yes. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. So do, do you know about congregationalism? Congregationalism. No. Which is what, An- which is what Anthony Comstock. I mean, it was, there were like 10 at that point that were just way not fun. Yeah. And that was one of them. Well, I think our listeners will have tons of fun reading this book. <laughs> very, very had, good. Uh, we've had such a fun time talking to you. I mean, we could talk to you forever about this because this time period for women is just so fascinating mm-hmm. to us and we love it. So when and where and how can people get your book? Okay. Okay. Well, I should also add one other thing, which is we now know that the Supreme Court is going to hear this case in October. Um, that's going to allow them to potentially overturn Roe v. Yeah. Wade and the way the numbers on the Supreme Court look. It's a very, very frightening thing. Um, for those people like me that are lucky to live in, in a state like New York that's already enacted some protections, um, we're, we're going to, I think we too often um, in this debate don't understand over the past 20 years or so there's so many restrictions on abortion already that we're already living in this post row climate where whether it's parental uh, agreement, um, mandatory ultrasound um, and medical, not being able to have medical abortion, which we, you know, which we know to be much lower risk and, and all of that, you know, we've, we're already seeing the clock having been dialed back for 15 or 20 years. So when I wrote this book, I hoped that I didn't want it to become increasingly relevant you know, over the time that I was writing, but I had a feeling it might. Um, so we, we had a different president then. So my book is coming out on the man, I'll, I'll give you like the whole plug, The Man Who Hated Women. Sex, Censorship, and Civil Liberties in the Gilded Age is coming out on July 6th, um, just after your delightful July 4th weekend. 
where you get them, you get Monday. I think it's Monday the 5th is a federal holiday because they got to give you the Monday if July 4th falls on a Sunday. So after you're out drinking your white claw in a canoe, um, you can buy this book. And we're really encouraging people to buy it on bookshop.org, um, which has done a great job of supporting independent booksellers um, in the pandemic and beyond. Um, my publisher is Farrah Strauss and Giroux, and my website's amysohn.com, A-M-Y-S-O-H-N.com. You can find me on Twitter at amysohn and Instagram. I haven't decided. I, I, I ha- my Instagram is currently not public, so we're, we're working on that. Um, and on my website, there's a whole bunch of events um, that I'm doing, and almost all of them are virtual which means that you can attend from wherever you want um, and buy your books from whoever you want to buy them from. Thank you again for coming on. This was so great. We can't wait for everyone to go out and read your book. Thank you so much for having me and keep up this work. It's really important and we need to hear these stories. And um, I'm so proud that you, you two are doing this because you are writing women's history too in the stories that you reveal and and you know how essential it is to get these narratives out there because they should not be hard to find and they are listening to her story on the rocks we are independently produced by 1986 entertainment and proudly recorded in baltimore maryland if there's a woman in history you would like us to cover you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com you can also message us on twitter or instagram we post all of our cocktail recipes on tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us see you next week bye